Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 220. We are uh, in the week that is going to enter into the nine days, which means we began the Bainam Tzadim, the three weeks, and began last Shabbos. Because Shavasa Batamas Nitche was pushed off till Sunday, and we are now a week after that, so the first week has ended of what's called the traditional three-week mourning period between the dire straits that we discussed last week. Yesterday, Shabbos, we benched, we blessed the month of Chedesh Menachem Av, which will begin this Friday. Beginning of what, within the three weeks, comes the nine days. Concluding with the ninth day from Rosh Chedesh Av till the ninth day of that month, of this month, and that is Tisha B'av, the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. Now we all hope Mashiach comes before that, and all these days, as the Prophet promises, and it's cited in Halach in the Rambam, the end of the laws of fasting, that these days should be transformed to joy and uh, celebration and holidays. As it says in one place in Medrash, that Tisha B'av will be the greatest holiday in the times of Mashiach. But as it stands right now, we have to prepare according to Teda, the way we see things as we see them right now, which means we're still in Golis. And as such, this is a period when we don't make weddings and other and unnecessary celebrations or leisure. And this only intensifies as we enter into the nine days. But as we discussed last week, and we discussed literally almost every week, in Jewish thought, and especially Apichsidis, there's no such thing as a negative, the shame negative. There's no such thing as a negative as an end in itself. Everything is a step toward greater growth. Sometimes it's a direct step, and you see how good brings to better. And sometimes you don't see it, because it's concealed, but within it lies potent energy and power, that when you tap into it and you harness it, it turns into a tremendous positive force, which is why these three weeks and the nine days carry this type of power. The Rebbe, in his inimitable style, revealed this by telling us to use these peri- this period in time to do everything possible to increase in Simcha Piteira. Kud de Hashem Yishar if they're learning Teira, through giving Zdokah, through learning the laws about the Beis Amikdash, through doing things that we can reveal the deeper good in this period of time in the way the Torah allows us to do. In the nine days, the Rebbe Rashab instituted and the Rebbe made it into a very public and publicized to make siyumim each day. So usually a siyum is done in order to be able to eat meat. So when you make a siyum and a gemara, it's a Sudas Mitzvah, and therefore you're allowed to eat meat in Sudas Mitzvah even the nine days. But the custom in Chabad was not to eat necessarily. It was the shame, the, the, the mere fact to make it into a Simcha day as much as possible, again, under the circumstances. What is this trying to be? To be a kunz? This is not like some type of game. It's because the real inner meaning and inner significance of these negative energies and this negative period is the deeper beauty and the deeper good that it will bring, and even now lies there within, and as the Rebbe makes the, the Chiddush, that the Yerid, not just Yerid, not just that the ascent brings to an ascent, but it's actually part of the ascent. Because the only way to get there is through the dip, 
the only way to get to the higher place is to, to go to step back or to lean back, and that itself becomes part of the process. And using the analogy, a famous analogy that Abhil Parachar made popular, made famous in his Maimir about the three weeks, and the Rebbe elaborated upon it in the Sikhis and a number of places, that this is an example of a teacher who is teaching a student. So there's a flow, there's a flow of ideas. And then what happens is the teacher pauses and he wants, he has a deep connection, deep connection with the student and has a desire to reveal to him an unprecedented new idea. But because it's not part of the regular flow, he has to, he has to compose himself. So he falls into silence, preparing himself to be able to present this great new innovation, this great new revelation. From the ostensible level, someone looking from the outside, including the student, you could think the, student, the teacher has removed himself. In truth, he's just being quiet because he's preparing himself and, and preparing his mind and preparing himself to reveal this greater truth. And that's what he considers to be the three weeks. That's why it's three weeks, Chabad, Chachma bin Adas, because it's a state of Mechin that's not connected to the Midas. That will come in the Shiva de Nechemta, the seven weeks that follow the three weeks of contemplation. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But the contemplation, you can think, is a form of removal. Like when a person is focusing and concentrating, Mechin, by, by nature, as this explains, is very is, is, is an isolated experience. So you start talking to people, or people talk to you, it will disturb your ability to focus and concentrate. But why are you focusing and concentrating on your mind is in order to create a greater revelation. But the student, as I said, and others can, can, uh, can be fooled into thinking that no, the teacher has left me. And therefore the darkness of the three weeks is really a preparation to reveal something greater. Not only is it in order to bring something greater. So you say, Arida is, the descent is not an end in itself, it's going to bring, but it's actually part of the process. Because the only way for him to, give, to offer that greater revelation is for him to pull back first into a silent state. And that's how this period is understood. So then when we do something that, according to Tehran Halacha, brings joy to us in a way that's completely permissible, it's not just, okay, since it's a sad day, let's do whatever we can to bring joy. We're actually revealing the primius and the inner significance of the teacher's silence. So it would be like the student saying, okay, let me make a siyum in the nine days. Let me learn the things in Taylor that are permissible and important to learn. Let us celebrate in that way. What you're celebrating is even the silence, you are recognized that there's something more going on. You just don't see yet the revelation. But you recognize that. It's, so it's a tremendous, it's a, a tremendous um, approach, almost a methodology of how to deal with challenges. We have a challenge, even though you don't see where that challenge is leading you to, but if you knew and you're confident that it's leading you to greater growth, so even though it seems like a setback, and you'd say, okay, what can I do? It's terrible. But I know that it's going to lead me somewhere. But it's more than that. This is actually part of the process. You just don't see it. So you can even celebrate a challenge in, of course, the ways that are permitted and, and appropriate to celebrate, not in some type of cocky or, uh, or naive or uh, detached from reality way. And that's how we see this. 
And therefore, it applies to us in our personal lives exactly in the same way. Now, another thing about the nine days that comes to mind when you hear the word nine, so anyone learning Chassidus, which cites from Sefer Yitzhida, that there are ten spheres, Eser spheres, Blima, without substance, Eser Velei Tesha, Eser Velei Yachad Ten and not nine, ten not and not eleven. Nine right away reminds you that there's a one missing. What's the one that's missing? So in ten spheres, the one that's missing is Malchus. As the Arizal says, that the Churban B'Samidrash was a Churban in Malchus, in the Levana, the Gam HaLevana, an injury, a wound, the wounded moon. The moons representing Knesset Yisrael, souls of Israel, representing Malchus on this earth, the B'Samidrash. And when there's a wound due to the destruction of the Temple, there's a wound in Malchus, there's a wound in the moon. So it's nine and not ten. Our job is to fill in that tenth component. And when we do, as I said, it becomes even a greater holiday, which again we'll discuss in future episodes, the 15th of Av, because it's a transformation from that darkness in the context that we're discussing, not just transformation, the revelation that is, lies at the heart of the silence and even the destruction on the extensible level of these nine days. Rishchidoshav, which is the beginning of the nine days, is also the yard site of Arnakayim. What's the connection? Arnakayim was known for his Avis Yisrael. Havimitamid of Shalan, be a student, be of the students of Arn, Eves Abrius, Umakarvan Latera. Eyev Shalom, Vereidav Shalom is the full statement. Love peace and pursue peace. Eyev Sabriyas, love the creatures. Umakarvan Latera, bring them to Tera. Av, Adam is connected to Av. That's what we find when he passed away, all the Jews, Kol Yisrael, wept. By contrast, when it says, by Moshe's passing, it says, the sons. Of course, everybody wept, but it's a focus of the universality of Aaron because Aaron pursued peace and went around. He was a man among the people. Moshe was on the pedestal, God's chosen uh, chosen leader, chosen Rebbe. Pedestal, I mean, say, it was Rememus, like a Melech, which is Sheikh Mimayla Gavayim Kolam. He was a, higher then, the teacher, the prophet, God's messenger. Aaron would spend time making peace between couples, between people who got into quarrels. So the Jewish people acutely felt the loss. Obviously, you can't compare it to the loss of Mason in its own way, but we're talking about the, the feeling on a day-to-day basis, his involvement with them. So why did we, of all days? Because Magdim Raful Lamaka. What is the significance of the 10 minus 1, the 9? It's missing the dignity. Why was the temple destroyed? Because of baseless hatred, sinas chinam. What is the antidote? Avon. So as we begin the nine days, it's not just giving us strength, it's like preceding the cure before the illness, revealing to us that the real meaning of the nine days, as it's all encompassed in the first of the nine days, which is Arish Chedesh, as we know, Rish, as the Rebbe emphasizes so often, is not just the beginning of the month, 
the head of the month. It's the central nervous system that encompasses all the days of the month. So what is, how does the Shechidosh of begin? It begins immediately. The Yotzai Tavan, the day when his Aveda, as the Alter Rebbe explains in the Gerasa when all his work in this world all gathers together and elevates upward and brings Pale Yeshua's Beket of Aretz, causes salvations, Beket of Aretz in the depths of this world. So we have the antidote preceding the, the illness, the, the cure preceding the disease, giving us the strength that as we enter the nine days, we'll have the unity to create the ten out of the nine and fill that empty dignity, the wounded moon, the wounded malchus, to the point where we can turn it into the Gaula amitis v'ashleim. In an applied chassidus level, that, that it's quite obvious what the lesson here is, as I said earlier, that every challenge in life is a mini form of nine days in our personal lives. Sometimes it takes on a, a more serious manifestation in the context of trauma, loss, other things that we suffer from as a result of this broken world. And what does it do? It wounds our malchus. It wounds our personal dignity. When a person doesn't feel dignity, they feel not valued. They don't feel validated. They lose confidence, self-esteem. This is all malchus is being compromised. And that's the, de- deepest, the deepest damage done in malchus. Because if a person is lacking chachma bina das, these are faculties. Chesed gurit They're necessary faculties. But they don't lie the heart of what makes a human being a human being. You can have all the nine faculties from Chochmah through Yisod and you don't have Malchus. It's like you don't have an element of self-worth or your self-worth is compromised. Comes the nine days and tells us, yes, that's what it is on the surface level, what you're experiencing. But the truth is within that lies a deeper silence which carries within it a deeper message that when you rebuild your dignity, when you restore it, when you connect with others, when you compensate for it by becoming a more loving person, a more refined person, then you reveal the deeper good and the deeper strength within the nine days. The lessons are, are abundant, and each of us have to find a way to customize it to our own personal lives. So that's somewhat of a chesedah applied of Rish in the nine days. Let me go and make a little housekeeping as I usually do at the beginnings of these classes. So this is my life because it's applied. You can find all the resources connected to this uh, program, this one and previous archives at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. And there you also have a forum where you can submit your questions and comments completely anonymously and confidentially. It's also a good opportunity. We are, this is a free program. A lot of work goes into it and we really depend on your sponsorships and support. So please go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship and make a generous contribution, especially in honor of the nine days, in honor of the three weeks, in honor of the nine days. Especially in Tzedakah, when it's used to spreading Chassidus, teaching Chassidus, and applying Chassidus to our lives, we were promised by Mashiach himself to the Baal that that is the most direct route to bring the goal. As Mashiach told the Baal Tov, to answer his question, why, when will you come? He said, When will Mashiach come? When the wellsprings will spread outward. And this is the core heart and heart of my chassidus, my life chassidus applied, applying chassidus to our personal chutzah, meaning our internal challenges, to the chutzah in our immediate 
um, environment and to the chutzah in the larger world. So your support makes this happen, and I really appreciate your partnership in making this happen, both partnership in the comments and questions that you submit, as well as support of all levels, including financial support. So thank you for that. Let us uh, also do a little cross-referencing. I mentioned the Rosh Chodesh in the nine days. So obviously this has been discussed in previous years. We're already in the fifth year of My Life Chassidus Applied. So every year this period in time, this, this is one of the themes. So the cross-referencing of more, more on this topic is in episodes 28, 75, and 76, 125 and 126, and 172 and 173. And all the topics are listed and time-stamped in the YouTube version of the videos, which you find, as I said, in My Life, because it's applied, meaningfullife.com slash mylife. You can find those videos, and they're time-stamped, meaning you can go straight to the subject you're looking for, and you can search by name, by topic, by themes, and so on. Okay. This coming week is also Parshas Matas Masse, the second Parsha in the three weeks. The three weeks have three Parshas. The first was Pinchas, Matas Masse, and the third, of course, will be Dvarim, which is always Shabbos Chazayin, the Shabbos before Tishabov. Matas Masse is the conclusion of the Sefer Bamidbar, Elam Masse Bnei Yisrael. But we also have the Parsha Matis. So a short thought on that and its application, and here too, cross-referencing to episodes 75, 125, and 171. And that is, let's start with Masay because it's so obvious. The journey. Recognizing that life is a journey teaches you that all aspects of this journey, whether it's the twists and turns or the ups and downs, are part of a journey going toward a destination, a beautiful destination. This includes the journey through the Jewish calendar, which again is a journey through our lives. So even the nine days and the three weeks is part of that journey. As Chassidus says, what do you mean? The 42 journeys, there was only one journey that was out of Mitzrayim. So how do you say? All the 42 journeys that are enumerated in, the, in, this, in this parsha are all part of leaving Mitzrayim? Yes, because the, what means leaving Mitzrayim? Leaving the the boundaries and the confines and the constraints of life. The Mitzadim. Mitzrayim is like Mitzadim. The boundaries, the limits that constrain us. And all the journeys, not just the first one when they actually left the physical land, but all the 42 till they came to the promised land. And the same thing as the Baal Shem Tov says, every human being goes through these 42 journeys through their lifetime. And furthermore, 42 journeys every day. Here's a good place to mention that a number of years ago I wrote up a whole personal application of where do you find these 42 journeys in our lives. Fascinating, when I remember when doing it and the research, fascinating story. And we can find that as well online, the 42 journeys in our personal lives based on the Baal Shem Tov's And what all leading to the promised land, but all with the purpose and intention to free us from the boundaries of Mitzorim and Mitzrayim. So the parsha directly connects to this period in time, teaching us it's a journey, the journey of the spiral staircase. You're climbing the staircase. So the spiral staircase doesn't let you see the destination at all times. And there are times you turn your back to it. And you can deceive yourself like the student I mentioned before can think that the teacher fell silent. He's no longer here. He thinks he's no longer here. Just like when you climb the staircase, you turn your back and you don't see the destination any longer. So you can give up. No, see it through. 
And right before the final turn, right before the destination, you'll have to make a final turn, completely not seeing the destination. Like the Chassidus speaks, that you can be right near it, a treasure, but your back is facing there, to recognize that, no, see it through. And when you see it through, you reach that destination. We read, however, also Masse together with Matis. The Rebbe speaks a number of places. Matis, Masse coming together seem to be, as we find in other parshas, like two different themes that are even antithetical ones. Matis refers to a strong mata, a, a dried out rod, as opposed to a shavit, which is a moist twig, easily bent. It refers to also the shvatim, have also both names, shavit as branches. The 12 shvatim are 12 branches, but it can be a shavit, like a soft branch and a twig, or it can be matis, hard and strong, unwavering. Mase is all about movement, similar to where you find bahar and bechukese. Bahar, strong like a mountain. Bechukese telechu, movement. And the answer is because we need both in life. Like you look at a tree, it has very solid roots and a very strong trunk, but then it grows and spreads its wings, its branches in all directions. In our lives, we need a matis, a strong foundation, but not one that doesn't allow us to grow, that leads us into the growth. So the strong foundation is the faith. And you know, whatever part of your journey, whether it's an up or a down, is leading toward a destination. Masse is the journey itself. And they come together to teach us that lesson. Among many other lessons. Of course, the obvious lesson as well in Matis is, is the Muhammad with Midian. The Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab said, a maimah called the Cholzu, Tafresh Nuntes, because there was Machlekes and Hepech of Aves Yisrael at the time. He said the maimah twice that year. Based on the maimah Lekut that what Midian comes from the word modern and Machlekes, similar to the destruction of the temple due to Machlekes and Sinas Chinam. The war with Midian is the war against divisiveness, the war against, against um, hatred, the war against um, contention and, um, and, uh, and, and battles between individuals and factions and groups and communities, which of course is, a, is the battle that we fight in these three weeks and the nine days that we are entering into to cre- increase in Aves baseless love, to, to nullify and to counteract the effects of baseless hatred. The lesson to us all is, the bottom line is, unity is the healthiest thing a person can have. Unity when you feel the, the different voices in yourself, the different pressures, the different um, demands tugging you in, different, in all different directions. You recognize the unifying principle, how they're all leading to a greater place. That is what a healthy psyche is like. And an unhealthy psyche is when there's splinters. It's fragmented. You're being dragged in many different directions. And we know how it drains us. <coughs> Excuse me. And doesn't allow us to really focus because it literally drains our energy. So the lesson is very obvious in what, what we need to be doing. And this is the period in time when we're given extra strength to do exactly that. To repair the rifts and mend the ruptures and create this deeper unity of the nine becoming ten in the way that we do through loving each other, through care, through extra sensitivity, making sure that you are caring and concerned about another person instead of, God forbid, criticizing or even worse.
So with that, let us go to some of the questions. There are a few summer-related questions since we are entering the summer. And uh, even though this may have been more appropriate to speak about in previous weeks, but everything has its time. So let's begin with, um, and this is also, we've talked about these themes in the past. One of the issues of summer is, of course, the issue of tznias, modesty. Summer months, which are more looser months and warmer months, the Rebbe would make an emphasis on Sneas. And you see also one of the reasons that we learn Pirkei Ovis in the summer months, the commentaries explain, because in the time when there is a summer months, people are looser, and you need to be more careful. So we taught the ethics to be more stringent about our standards and modesty and so on. So one question that was asked regarding this and, and, and let me add before I go to the question, and I did discuss this more at length in episodes 97 and 98, 110, 171, and 172. Among other places, when we talked about modesty and tznias, what is the chesidish meaning of tznias? So here is a question, a short question, but uh, since it came in, it, uh, I'll read it. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I have been asking around for people's insight to this, so I thought I might be able to get some clarity from you. Till what age do you think it's acceptable for a boy to wear open shoes without socks? Basically, feet exposed and uncovered. Okay. Well, being that this borders on a halachic question, I actually checked the halachic sources and I had with Rabbonim. And interestingly, when you talk about sneeze, you don't find this mentioned to have open shoes without socks for a boy, even though tzniyas is also for men just as for women, for boys just as for girls. But this is not brought in any place that you need to do that. When the Alter Rebbe talks, for example, about how to dress in the morning, you don't even hear about the need to put on socks. This doesn't mean that there's our standards, because tzniyas, besides pure halacha, is also standards that people just accept as being a way of dressing modestly that may not be a halachic requirement, but an appropriate requirement simply due to the spirit of the law. That I'm not negating. So when you ask the question, what age, if you don't have a lochic aspect to this, it doesn't say anywhere in age. So I would just simply apply whatever age we start caring about boys, little boys, dressing, whether it's shorts or other garments that we, at some point, we have to begin, whether it's at age five or six or seven, whether they begin with long pants, and so on, I would apply the same thing. But not quite with the same stringency for the obvious reason, because it's not a halachic requirement. Yet, even if it is so-called a custom, and makes the appearance of a child and of any human being look more modest, more respectable. So that's the answer to that question. If someone does have more information that I have not seen on this, by all means, please share it, and I will share it for the benefit of the public. To move on, since we're talking about summer, another question came in about summer camp. What's our role and goal in camp? So I did discuss this theme back in episode 25, um, but I will just share a few more words about it. Over the years, you heard unbelievably powerful and uh, statements about the Rebbe, about getting us, the established the effort to try to get children and parents to send their children to summer camps, and especially overnight camps that are a kosher and a holy, sacred environment. And the Rebbe's main point, among others, was that you see the impact it has because it's 24-7. Sometimes two months of a summer camp can have more impact 
than the entire 10 months of the semester in school. Because in school you go home. Whatever home influences, even if they're consistent with the school, it's still not the same thing. Here you're together with your counselors, with your friends, with the right influences and role models, an environment that's a sacred environment 24-7. You sleep, you wake up, and you have therefore the impact, and we see this by Sarav, the fact is we see it. The impact is a tremendous impact. So in general sense, what would be the role and goal of summer camps? If you, anyone followed the talks and tales, which the Rebbe, of course, initiated and edited, it said their summer vacation is only vacation from bodily, but never from the soul. So we're, yes, more relaxed, less pressure. Summer is more leisurely time, but never from the soul. It's a time, on the contrary, to strengthen the soul. So the summer camp is meant to strengthen the soul of our children. Boys camps and girls camps, each in their way. And the 24-7 environment is, makes it very conducive for that. So that's the overall goal of camp. And we see it transforms kids. I went to camp. It had a transformative effect. There's no doubt about it. You know, the memories, the experiences, the fun, the learning. Obviously, it's the objective, the, 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 the responsibility of the faculty, the counselors and the head counselors and the head management to make sure that it's all joined together, the enjoyment and the fun and the entire spirit with a very ruchnizdik and spirit. As people shouldn't feel that the learning is just some burden, which is always a challenge. But that's already coming up with creative ways to make it exciting, to make it motiv- motivating and so on. But the environment is a tremendous one that really can change children's lives. Even if we don't say change, but enhance and create a, a pure environment for the few months that they're there, that, it's, that, is the role, that is the model and the highest standard of what's expected from a good Jewish boy and a good Jewish girl. And you see how much time they're ever dedicated to this. First of all, visiting the camps three times, both the boys' camp and the girls' camp, Machnamuna and Gan Yisrael. Also, the talks that he gave, not just when he was in camp, the talks that he gave when the campers would come to the Fabrengens, either for Yud-Based Thomas Fabrengen or more often Chofov Fabrengen. Then, of course, when they returned from camp, the Rebbe's special sikhs that he dedicated to the children. You see from all that the emphasis and the power. And we're all looking for ways to bring up our, health, our children to be the healthiest possible way. The best is preemptive measures, preventive medicine, not to wait till there's a problem. So when you have a tool like a camp, it's a tremendous opportunity it's very clear what camps are for, and perhaps today more than ever. And maybe that's why they never made such emphasis, because we're trying to inject an immunity that would help children get through the pitfalls and the challenges that they would experience as they go through their teen years in the yeshiva system with all the influences today that can have, unfortunately, negative effects. So summer camp reinforces and strengthens. It's like oxygen for the soul. And in that sense, the role and the goal in camp is very clear an opportunity in a very intense way during the summer months to turn it into a tremendous experience that will empower the child to fulfill their mission in the years to come forever, building their families and bringing up their children. So it's very clear, it's not just a small matter, it actually has a very powerful force and it's something we should take fully advantage of and appreciate properly. Okay. Let us move now to, the, to some more questions here. 
since this is a little segue from this topic of camp, it seems fitting to go to the next question, even though it wasn't asked necessarily regarding summer, but summer clearly has its own impact, unfortunately, in this direction. The question the person asks is, titling, Staying on the Path. What are reasons why someone would go off the derech? Some, some new euphemism that has been literally coined. Derech meaning the derech of Teremitz is going off the derech. I personally don't like the expression, but people are using it, so I'm just reading what's being used. <clears throat> I'll explain in a few minutes why I didn't like it. So what are the reasons why some would go off the derech, quote-unquote, and how can we influence them in a positive way with examples so that they don't reject it? Okay. Yes, this question, as I said, even though it's all year round, but in the summer it could also present many challenges because the summer, the leisures of the summer and the lightness of spirit can perhaps present even more challenges in this regard. The reason of the derech is because it, it sounds um, almost condescending and dismissive, even though I understand where the people are coming from when they say it. It also suggests that we're on the derech as if we're like really on the highest level. And this is the people of the derech. Like so I'm not here to coin a new expression. I just wanted to make that point. Like kiruv rechekim. Even though you find the expression in places, but the Rebbe at times negated it because you're defining who's arachik, who's close, who's distant, what defines distance, and you're bringing them closer. It just smacks from certain elements that can end up really being more destructive than productive. You know, who likes to be told, you know, you're off the derech, but I'm going to bring you back on the derech. I'll invite you to my home. I'll be nice to you. I'm going to bring you back on the derech. You wandered off. Many people who go that direction don't feel that they wandered off. Whatever the reasons they have, I'm not saying they're justified, but it's just by, by saying that, you're almost like categorizing them and categorizing people that you feel you want to inspire and motivate is usually not a good way to get them motivated. Because it's about compassion. It's about feeling and letting them speak for themselves instead of labeling them OTD, of the derech thing. I still understand why it's being used, but I, I'm, a, I'm very, being very... Uh, meticulous here about language, because language has effects. It gives off messages. So I just, I just wanted to stay that for the record. But let's talk about the topic itself, obviously. That's the issue here, not the, the words. Or maybe the words also help us uh, what, how to speak and how not to speak. To analyze the reasons why different people are challenged and why we see in certain families and homes their children that yes, begin to experiment and begin to wander into other pastures away from what they grew up with are many. Nobody has gotten it down to a science what the reasons would be. There are those that theorize, and I'm not going to go into an exhaustive analysis either because I'd rather talk about what to do about it, but still, let's just share a few words about this topic. And let me see, did I discuss this ever before? Yeah, I would refer you to episode 195. I did discuss it to some extent there, but let me say this. So there are those that theorize, and I heard this from a lot of professionals that I respect, that for a person to actually openly defy what they grew up with, meaning literally show, demonstrate in a very public way, and not just keep it like secret and live a double life, so to speak, is because something happened with their wiring. Something affected them that they need to, because the, natu- the nature of a person 
is to not necessarily be so radical. We like our, we, we, most people don't want to break away from family and community. Even if they have different thought process and they have different opinions, there's a certain comfort to being and uh, security to being with your family. So if someone makes a real statement, often some say, some professionals say something must have happened and it could be very much connected to sexual molestation. I think I've written about this in the past. I definitely wrote about it in the past. I may have even discussed it in previous episodes. Because these are things that tamper with the wires of a person. And especially if an abuse that came from a religious source. So what does it do for a young man or a woman? It says that source of Judaism is toxic. Why would I want to have any connection with it? So you almost have an allergic repulsion to anything religious. And I've heard this from many people. Shabbos was associated with abuse. Whatever the abuse was, whether it was verbal, physical, sexual, of course, is of the deepest forms or others that were connected with other holidays. So what you happen is you began to, you began to, these people begin to associate the religion with this abuse, even though they may have positive memories. I met a fellow a while back who was, who was completely left Yiddishkeit, at least on an open level, as the Rebbe would always say, la'esato, up till now. And I asked him, I said, and you know, he opened up with me. I didn't just go over and say what's going on. He started talking to me and I asked him, you miss it? He says, yes, I miss it tremendously because there were so many beautiful things. My family, still, he's connected with his family, but he doesn't have any connection to any type of holidays or Shabbos or Yom Tov, Yom Kippur and so on. He's channeled it into, he likes to build. He's a builder. So he channeled it into building. And I said, if you miss it, why, why do you have to throw out the baby the bathwater? You can reject the things that you feel are not. He says, they, they, it was a word that made my, it broke my heart. He said, they stole the beauty from me. <clears throat> they stole the beauty from me. In other words, the toxic stuff that he experienced, and I'm not sure of the details, took away the beauty as well. And I, could, I saw the anguish in his voice that like he had something beautiful and it was t- taken away. So he, had to, he felt that he had to drop it all. Whether, whether he's correct or not, I'm not going to get into. But the bottom line is, because I'm not here to judge, I listened. You know, obviously, I would do everything possible to show him how to maybe reconnect, and you throw out the waste, you throw out the peels, and you retain the fruit, which we'll talk about in a moment, what to do about it. But I felt his pain, because he said it with that. He says they stole the beauty. Example would be, my own example, you know, someone loved music. And then something happened, whether, whether they were doing music lessons or other things that hurt the person, and they can't listen to the music anymore because it's associated with it. But they remember the beauty of the music, and it was stolen from them. I'm saying this because I think it's important to recognize the responsibility we all carry to make sure things like this don't happen. It's one of the worst crimes possible to hurt children. Worst crimes possible to steal the beauty from them, the things that gave them sustenance, that gave them excitement, that gave them joy. I mean, which child in a decent community do not look forward to a Shabbos or to a Yom Tov and to all the, the gifts that come with it, the new clothing, just feeling fresh. How could we deprive them of that? Instead, you hear so often the, the, the condescension, the dismissal of the derch. Some parents don't even want to look at such children. It's a disgrace. Some of those parents actually were the cause of it. And now they don't want to look at the children because they're embarrassed. 
But I'm not here to point fingers on anybody because many parents did not do everything right and still things happen. So this isn't about blaming anybody. I just mentioned there is a category like that. So now we have to address the issue once we understand and have the empathy, which is the critical, most important thing in how to help someone, you have to have empathy. If you think this is going to be a crusade, you're going to now fix the of the derech children, I find that if I was in that, in that boat on the receiving end, I would not be very, feel very excited to go to somebody who feels going to fix me. And I would say, why don't you fix yourself, fix your system, create a beautiful nurturing environment for future children. <clears throat> so I don't think that's the approach. The approach is empathy, care, concern, sensitivity. And the more you can show of that, the more you may have a positive influence. Because when people feel empathy, their hearts open up. Some of the things that we can do about it is creating environments of trust where people feel safe, they feel they can communicate, and just leave those doors open because you never know when a person is going to communicate. There are many times they will not want to communicate. But we have to do our part to always be there for our, whether it's siblings, whether it's children, whether it's cousins, whether it's even friends and not and strangers. Create that type of environment. I have to say, especially of late, there are some really beautiful souls who've also established beautiful organizations that do reach out and have created safe environments and secure places for young men and women to go to to rebuild their lives. Now I'll say, what about the people who philosophically have become atheists or philosophically have moved away? I am of the belief that nothing is just philosophical. Philosophical, philosophical, we all have philosophical questions. We all can have philosophical doubts. This is far more emotional than it is philosophical. Because smart person, you can make a case for God, you can make a case against God. Decisions we make are not built on pure philosophical inquiry. <clears throat> Obviously, if you're surrounded by religious idiots, and I don't know, maybe that may be even a contradiction of terms, because someone that's truly a faith person of faith is not an idiot, but if you're surrounded by people who, who talk childishly and talk nonsense and try to make a case for God that is both incorrect and also primitive. So, of course, you have a good philosophies to argue against that. But there are very sophisticated cases to be made for faith and for God and for religion and for Judaism. So why would someone reject those arguments? Because there are other factors involved, and they're not just purely intellectual ones. The emotional ones. Is this a place where I feel safe? Or is it a place where I feel secure? Is this something that resonates with truth? So it's not about purely, can you prove that the Kriya Samsuf happened, the parting of the sea? Can you prove that the man fell from heaven for 40 years? Can you prove that God created heaven and earth? So there are logical proofs, we can talk about them. But why do some people embrace and some people don't? Do you think it's purely these people are the philosophers, philosophically accept these, these arguments and these don't accept these philosophical arguments? It's always other factors involved. Because you can say the arguments both ways and you have to make a choice. If you grew up in a dysfunctional environment, even if there's great philosophical arguments, why, do you want to, why would you want to hang around? So of course you're going to gravitate to the philosophical arguments that go the other direction. So I don't believe this is a philosophical battle, so to speak. You, meet, you need to know, you may need to know and be able to communicate and talk about God and faith and so on in an intelligent manner. But 
you also need to go back to the personal side. So this really requires more elaboration, but I think this is suffice for now. And I definitely open up the floor and to invite your comments, your questions, your way of looking and approaching this topic. I believe we addressed it, as I said in previous episodes, but perhaps it could be, def well, not perhaps, I'm sure it can be addressed more elaborately, more details and branching into many aspects because this is a challenge that many, many of us face. Ain't buys below you. There's no house that almost does not face some of these challenges with our young men and women and therefore wealth worth, well worth talking about. But I will just say in sum that Judaism and Torah, especially when you learn Chassidus, Primus is an unbelievably beautiful, eloquent, healthy system, functional, to make you a healthier human being. That's the bottom line. And that's how we have to teach it and apply it to people's lives. If it's not taught that way, then you have, you have the first big challenge because you're not giving that young man or woman the tools to be able to, be able to embrace the emotional, psychological, spiritual, and personal arsenal that Teda provides us to deal with the challenges we have both internally and externally. I'm not saying if you don't have that understanding, it guarantees there's going to be problems, but it definitely opens up and creates a lot more vulnerability and fragility in this context. So it's vital that we teach it this way and create such environments that are trusting and live up to that. Then when a challenge comes, you have something to fall back on and not say, oh, you know what, you're right. We forgot to mention to you that all this is relevant to your life and if you really understood the relevance, you would be able to deal with your issues here. No, the issues became, and then what do you do now? Not so easy to just turn the clock back. So we have a great responsibility to teach Teda, apply Teda and Chassidus in a relevant, personal way to our young, educate our child according to his path or her path. So as he gets older, he will not wander off. Maybe that's the word we should use, Yosud. Of the derech, will not wander off this path. But that requires apidarke, a customized, personalized message where a person feels that this is helping them actualize. And the point is not self-actualization. We're serving God. But the point is they feel the self is valued. They feel the self is engaged. They feel the passion and excitement of a system, a divine system that's actually helping an individual become more divine. Next question, unrelated, is do we celebrate our English birthdays? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I wanted to know the Jewish Chabad approach in celebrating our English birthday. I have heard about the idea that English dates have a significance. For example, when the Rebbe writes about the 4th of July, the Rebbe says, by divine providence, also my arrival in the United States in 1941 coincided with the declaration by Congress that year, making July 4th a legal public holiday. So I want to know how this, if this applies as well, English dates to our personal birthdays. Thank you in advance for taking my question. I just want to mention the July 4th letter, I will discuss as a follow-up because I spoke about was July 4th mentioned by the Rebbe in last week's episode that was spoke, spoke about that topic. So later we'll talk about that more. But I want to talk about the English holiday. So the Rebbe also, we find, we find reference to the English, uh, English dates where the Rebbe spoke about New Year, that we can greet people Happy New Year, and you find in Tehillim, 
Pei Zayin Vov, 87.6, the Apostle Hashem Yisper Bixav Amim. Hashem counts in the number of the nations, which means in the register of the nations according to their calendar. So there is the idea of a secular calendar being used. Yes, it could be a date that can be used to identify certain contracts and so on, even though Ksuba or every Torah-based contract needs to have the Hebrew date and not the English date. And there are questions, what do you do if you have only an English date? Because the English date is also an accurate date. So let's apply this now to the birthdays. I have not found something directly from the Rebbe or from Chassidus that addresses this issue, but it's a very good question. And again, I invite you, if anybody does have something about English birthdays, to please share. Now here, let's just lay out the issues at the table here. We all have a Hebrew birthday, obviously. What's the English birthday and the Hebrew birthday? That the day you were born and, brought and came to this world was a day that had an English date and had a Hebrew date. However, because the Gregorian calendar and the, the Hebrew calendar, the lunar calendar, the Gregorian calendar is a solar calendar, 365 days of the year, and the lunar calendar is more 11 days less than that, 355 day, 354 days, we compensate with leap years. So what happens is the next year, the English day, your English birthday and Hebrew birthday will not be the same day. Every certain amount of years, it does, they, they do get reconciled based on the, the scheduling of the calendars. That obviously, being Torah people and Jewish people, we follow the Hebrew date. Rosh Hashanah is on the first day of, of Tishrei. Sukkot is on the 15th day of Tishrei. Yom Kippur is the 10th day of Tishrei. Even though Yom Kippur, you can say the first time you can find the English date, but that's not what we go by. And especially according to Chassidus, that day is energy. Hayom Me'elin Iskarim Venasim. These days are remembered and done. So the Rizal explains because we recreate the energy that existed since time is like a spiral. So the time comes back to that point, the energy is recreated. That happens on the Hebrew birthday. It doesn't happen on the English one. So the only English is a marker, but it's not something that happens every year. Now there are people who remember their English birthdays, not their Hebrew. I wouldn't dismiss that because bottom line is, if you know someone like that, so just like with an English name, they may have an English name, you ask them, do you know your Hebrew name? And if they don't, you help them find out their Hebrew name. But I cannot say there's a spiritual value to an uh, English birthday. It would be more a technical thing. That's the person's birthday. You help them, you can send them a gift. That's the birthday they celebrate, so that has meaning. And it was an actual day. That was the date when they were born on that day. And then you say, by the way, what's your Hebrew birthday? I don't see a contradiction. So, initially, the fact is most of us do know both birthdays, but the Hebrew birthday is the one we celebrate. The English birthday we know. Some people celebrate both. <clears throat> the opportunity to get gifts both. Some only know about the English and simply not aware. So I can't say there's spiritual significance, but there's technical significance and so-called cultural significance. And in that sense, we have to sometimes recognize it and maybe use it as a springboard to come to help people learn when their Hebrew birthday is. Okay. The next question is global warming. What does the Rebbe say about climate change and about environmentalism? What's Judaism Chassidus Rebbe's view concerning our obligation to sustain and protect endangered species and caring for the environment? To what extent does someone need to concern themselves personally and monetarily? Thank you for touching upon this important and relevant question. Okay. 
So firstly, I discussed this in episode 96. You can go there and there's a more elaborate discussion. I'll just say briefly, I'm being brief because I'm relying on, you're going to look at 96 and no need to repeat what I said then. God, with the, the Torah approach, especially the Hasidic approach, is far, far more sensitive and caring to the environment and the world than any secular environmentalist for one reason. God created the world. So every part of the world, every fiber of existence is sacred. Let me, let me clarify. Sacred, I don't mean Kedusha, but sacred, God put it here. And we have the very stringent laws about Baltashkas. Not to destroy something, even mineral. Not to throw something out for no reason. Definitely our sensitivity to vegetable and the animal kingdom. So the environment is created by God, the climate is created by God, and we are here to preserve and make the world grow and be more healthy, not to destroy it. To civilize it. The famous story with Friedrich Rebbe walking once with his father, the Rebbe Rashab. They were having a conversation. Friedrich Rebbe was a young boy. He ripped off a leaf from the tree and began to rub it for no apparent reason. The Rebbe Rashab reprimanded him and rebuked him and said, According to the Arizal, this leaf has a chayis, has a life, has a trajectory. What gave you the right to disturb its journey? A leaf. And of course, we know Moshe Rabbeinu's sensitivity to the sheep. All this teaches us that this is God's world. And the only reason we have a right to touch, let alone to consume, is because God said, I'm giving you a right if you use the food. If you use the world, the resources of the world as food or others as fuel to make the world a better place, then you're actually elevating and fulfilling the purpose of these lower species. But if you're doing it just indulgent, you have no right. What right do you have to disturb the, the trajectory, as I said, of the choreography of the world around us? So the answer, bottom line, is that we have absolutely considered the universe, the physical world, as being a divine universe, and therefore all the laws that apply, including Tsar Balachim, I should have mentioned, causing pain to animals. Hunting is forbidden, just for leisure, for all the above reasons. Now, getting to the, today's climate change, you know, firstly, nobody has to preach, as I said, to a Torah person, the importance of preserving the world. It's God's world. But there is also politics around this. And just, just say, just because somebody says that this and this thing is now something that becomes a cause, that has to be checked. I'm not necessarily being showing skepticism to climate change, because I know right away people say, oh, there we go, this, this is right-wing conspiracy. I'm just saying we know there's politics, and especially when there's economics involved, industries that are affected by the development of certain uh, safeguards or the opposite, Industries built on sometimes destroying the climate, destroying the environment, whether it's toxifying the waters or in other ways destroying the world. So I'm not taking a side here. I'm just saying once you get there, then you're also dealing with a whole PR campaign and propaganda that you need to cut through. But overall, it's a divine universe. And as such, yes, absolutely, we consider it sacred for that reason and all that I've said till now. Let's do some follow-up. We'll do three short follow-ups, then we'll do the chassidus, and then we'll do the essays. Follow-up is like this. The first one was about the pu pushing over the fast. 
which we spoke about last week, as I mentioned, Shivasa Batamas was Shabbos, as will be Tishabov, so the fast is pushed till Sunday. And we spoke about from the Rabbeim, the expression, Kivin Diitchi Itchi, the Rabbeinu HaKadosh Rebbe says, the, the, the consideration, the Havamina, that since it was already pushed off, let it be pushed off entirely. But the Chacham didn't agree, and that's why we do fast on Sunday. So this fellow writes, or this person writes, last week you discussed the Sikh on the 17th of Tammuz, that was, that was Nitcha, pushed off. Perhaps you were referring to the Sikh in volume 33 of the Kut starting on page 156. I was hoping you might explain paragraph 7 on page 162, where the Rebbe explains the statements of the previous Rebbe and the Rebbe Marash. I'm afraid I do not understand the punchline. Thank you. Yes, I was referring to that, though I did not cite that by, by, by chapter and verse. Thank you for giving us the source. I'm not sure what's confusing. I mean, the point there is exactly what I said. Being that the primi is the true meaning of the three, nine weeks, including the fast days, is really not to be a fast day, but Yehovchu, the Yom Tevim, the Yehovchu Yom Mel, the Sassan, the Amayidim Tevim, that's why there's the Havimina that you push it off because that's really its intention is to be pushed off and finally finished it all, all together. And maybe be zeichet to the Gula. So I'm not sure what's asked, what's, what your question is. If you can spell it out more, I'd be happy to elaborate on it. But I appreciate, again, the source and the discussion of this I already gave last week, so I'm not going to go over it again now. Another topic we spoke about was July 4th, as mentioned. Did the Rebbe say anything about July 4th? So last week, I did not have a particular source, even though I remember in the back of my mind that there were. So I brought the Sikh of B'Shalach Tovshin Mem and, refer- and other references to the concept of the Declaration of Independence and in general the, the foundation of this country and his birthday on July 4th. But, of course, thank God, what's been going around is a letter actually written by the Rebbe Let me pull it up if I have it here. Actually, I read it before, but let me... Um, the date of the letter... Hmm. Preparing my papers. I'm sure I put it into this pile here. So bear with me. Yeah, right here. Okay. Sorry about that. We're only human. <clears throat> So this is a letter dated the 3rd of Elul, Tafshin Nun Aleph, interestingly. And it includes the English date, August 13, 1991. Talk about English dates. And it's addressed to President George Bush, the White House. The Rebbe is referring to, he says, the Rebbe writes, I was deeply moved by your gracious felicitations in connection with the 50th anniversary of my arrival in the United States. That year, Nun Aleph, was 50 years from Tafshin Aleph and the Rebbe arrived to America. And the Rebbe goes on to speak about the Rebbe blessing him for his blessings. The Rebbe says, I welcome especially your remarks, my dear President, as a tribute to the Lubavitch movement, which I am privileged to head. That it has grown and flourished in this country is a testimony to the conducive climate and responsive human nature that combine to ensure that all positive efforts are abundantly fruitful. And here's what the Rebbe adds now. By divine providence, your kind letter was dated on the morrow of the anniversary of the nation's birthday. That means July 5th, the day after July 4th. It is well to remember that the founders of this nation considered Independence Day as, quote, a day of deliverance, 
by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. By divine providence, un, end of quote. By divine providence, also my arrival in the United States in 1941 coincided with the declaration by Congress that year making July 4th a legal public holiday. There you go. The Rebbe Mamish mentioned July 4th, connecting it to his own arrival to the United States. So, of course, you have to look this up, looking it up. July 4th was a holiday before 1941. But in 1941, it became also a paid holiday for the Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. So maybe that the Rebbe is referring to that, that it became now a formal holiday throughout the whole country, not just parts of it, or all the country, including the capital. However you explain it, but the Rebbe is clearly identifying it as such. The quote actually is from John Adams that he delivered to the Congress in, in 1775, I believe, the year before the declaration. It's also in a letter that he wrote to his wife, Abigail. But regardless, the message of it, that connecting a day deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty, is a tremendous point of the lesson of July 4th and its connection to the Rebbe coming to America to do exactly that. As the Rebbe writes in the previous paragraph that it's about the testimony, a climate responsive to human nature that combined to ensure that all positive efforts are abundantly fruitful, including the activities of Lubavitch. If anybody wants the letter, please send us an email. You could use the forum, but include your email in it because we don't know who you are, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of this, meaningfullife.com slash mylife. That's where you'll find that forum. Good. Let us now go to one more follow-up. And that is, oh, I want to also mention the Sikh of Yud Shvat Tovshin Lamed Hay. There the Rebbe also spoke. I don't believe he referred to July 4th directly by name, but he definitely referred to the founding of this country, which happened on July 4th. So that's one more source. And again, anyone wants to add to this, please do. And I will include it for the record, for the benefit of all. One more follow-up. Who is our true parent, the Rebbe or our biological parents? So I was made aware that what I spoke about, the distinction, has actually happened in a story, a Yechidus in 1941, with the Posner brothers. Zalman and Label Posner were young students in yeshiva. They were going home, which they did once a year. And they went into Yechidus, and the Friedrich Rebbe asked them, spoke in Yiddish, and asked them, how are they going? They said, by bus. I think they were going to Chicago. And well, is the boss warm? They weren't sure, but the Friedrich Rebbe, whether they heard it right. They, the Friedrich Rebbe said it again, and they said, yes, it was warm. It's warm. Anyway, the Rebbe gave them a bracha, and then he told them, he said, I consider you my children. The difference is your parents are your Gashmizdike Elton. Or you are their Gashmizdike children. You are their biological, physical children. And for me, you are my spiritual children or I'm your spiritual father. And then he concluded and said, Kinder fortgesundheit. Children, travel well. So just additional point in the discussion we had last week on this topic. Thank you for making that, me aware of that. See this question. Is it an absolute that Mashiach must come in the next 220 years before the seventh millennium? Being that we're now in the year Tov Shin Ches, so you add... Ayinches till the end of this uh, hundred years will be Ayinches Peites, Tzadik will be 21, and then another, another hundred. So, uh, I'm sorry. 
that would make it the year tough, uh, tough shin. That would be tough, tough, and then tough, tough kuf would be another. So it'd be two hundred and twenty-one years till the end of the seventh millennium. So he's asking: Is it an absolute must? They must come by the end by by the end of the sixth millennium, meaning before the seventh millennium. Rabbi Jacobson, recently I heard that Chassidus says that the seven weekdays of Hashem refers to the 7,000 years of creation. One day being a thousand years like the Pesach and Tilim. He means, that for the Ebershter, a thousand years is like one day, like one yesterday. That would mean that standing in 5778, there are about 220 years, 220 years till the seventh millennium. Is it absolute that Mashiach must come in the next 220 years before the seventh millennium? I find myself excited about the knowledge that Mashiach must come within the next 221 years, and our job is to make it quicker. Please, can you confirm and add insight? Thank you for everything that you do. So yes, that is accurate, because it says clearly, and the Elif Hashvi will be Shabbos, Yem Shekulei Shabbos, Omenuch Lechai so if nothing happens, we say bi'ita, the ge'ula coming without any speeding up, it must be, because it's like, just like Shabbos will come after six days of the week, Shabbos mekatsha v'kaima, the seventh millennia will come after 6,000 years. So that's a given. The Ramban is the one that actually corresponds the days to the years. In Breshis, I believe, where's the Ramban? In Breshis, Beis, give me a moment. Beis Gimel, the Ramban speaks, and also the Bechai about the corresponding of the first day of creation, Yem Rishon, which is Eir, to the Elif Arishon, and the second to the Elif Asheni, and so on. But regardless, it's correct to say that. However, however, the big however is the following. The Rebbe told us clearly we're at the threshold of the Gula, the Deir Ashvi. Why? Because there's a thing called Achishena. Achishana means we speed it up through the Aved of people. And based on that, the Rebbe says, Kolo Kola Kitsin, all the Kitsin, all the deadlines were met already. We did already Tshuva, all the Aveda, and all the Samanim indicate that it was going to come immediately. And the Rebbe's question was the other way around. If the Gula didn't come, why in Hakanat? So he said, Takakasha. So Chaz was shown that we have to wait 221 years. Yes, it's closer than it was in the past. So I understand your excitement. But we're told it can happen right now. I, the seventh, what will happen? Look, so the idea of ushering in Shabbos earlier, we know that we have, first of all, taste for Shabbos. We light candles 18 minutes before the Shkia. And it starts Friday night already. That's why we taste from the foods of Shabbos already on Friday. So there's a very interesting sikha with the Rebbe in volume uh, Tov Shinnun, Sefer HaSichas Tov Shinnun, the Sichah Va'era, where it talks about the two different ways of understanding how the millennia divide to the days. Do you count 24 hours? If you count 24 hours, then the year 5750, Tov Shinnun, is 750 in the fifth millennium, the sixth millennia, is three quarters of the day, a Friday. If you count 12 hours, it's a different category. And it's all spelled out there on page 254 in the notes in the copious notes about the different ways to count. But regardless, we're definitely Friday in the afternoon now. And therefore, the Shabbos energy is already there. And Al-Pi'aloch, you already be allowed to make Shabbos earlier. 
So with this Elif Ashvi, for sure, there's not a question it will be Yem Shukuli Shabbos Menucha, but we're told that it could even begin earlier, and that it will begin earlier, and it's up to us to do something to make that happen. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. The Gilu of Chassidus, as cited in those sources, and I said in the Va'eda Tav page 254, is all part of the taste of Shabbos Dika foods already before Shabbos on Friday. So already learning Chassidus and it's growing, and the day Rashvi, all the seven generations come together. As the Rebbe said, this is the day that will bring the Shechina down below, Shanti Besechem. Okay. The Rebbe has in several places explains the same idea. You, for example, it says in the Gemara, Shital Feshnin, the same Gemara, 6,000 years. The first 2,000 would be Toyu, the second 2,000 is Teda, and the third 2,000 is Mashiach. So Mashiach is already the second two, last 2,000, which means the beginning of the fifth millennium. Fifth and sixth millennia is the, is the last 2,000. Third and fourth is Teda. The one and two, first and second is Teyu. But we know Avram Avinu was already born in Teyu, but he was the beginning of Matan Teda. Matan Teda was in the year 2,448. But Avram Avinu already came before. So clearly it's not exactly in the day. There's an overlap. The general periods is that you have these three sections called Teyu, Teda, and Mashiach. And of course, Yem Shekuli Shabbos HaMenuch is when there's a complete transformation of the world. Okay, with that, let us go now to the essays. So we have three essays as we do every week. Essay number one is Not on Our Own by Shlema Sherman, age 42, Las Vegas, Nevada. He's an attorney. And his theme that he discusses, Amidst today's cornucopia of vices, foibles, compulsions and addictions, many have been searching for a solution. For some trick or life hack to free them from the clutches of destructive habits and behavior. How do we break out of this loop? How do we take the next meaningful step toward fulfilling our purpose? Some have turned to the now ubiquitous 12 steps of recovery, originally designed for Alcoholics Anonymous as a meaningful path to recovery and wellness. These steps have been so remarkably effective for addicts that the well-known psychiatrist Rabbi Abraham Tversky, MD, has authored several books adapting the 12 steps as an approach to healthy living for non-addicts as well. And he goes on to actually bring Chassidus into the picture. And he says, It still amazes me that despite having been a student of Chassidus for many years, I could still embrace such a shallow perspective. How could I possibly have missed that these basic tenets of recovery for addicts of the 12 steps were in fact echoes of Chassidus' key prescription for a life of meaning and integrity? He goes on to show how Chassidus really has been teaching this long before the 12 steps came around. Very, very solid essay, addressing obviously a true issue. And he goes on to speak about it in more detail as he goes into the essay. This essay can be read and viewed at meaningfullife.com slash mylife, the essays of this year, as well as by subscribing to our newsletter, we send out the essays as we post them. And they're really tremendous to read. What can I say? Okay, next essay is... The Positive Side of Atheism and the Way to Reveal It by David Rov, age 28, Haifa, Israel, Shliach in the Chabad Mezdis in Haifa HaDuma. The red Haifa they call it, HaDuma. So this is in Hebrew, and it's an intriguing title, isn't it? The Positive Side of Atheism and the Way to Reveal It. In Hebrew, Hatzad HaChiyuvi Shabbat Atheism, Vaderech Legalis 
So he goes through atheism as it's become part of the, the history of atheism until the point of our generation. Um, what lies behind atheistic thinking? How do you deal with it? And the way Chassidus, a revolutionary way that Chassidus deals with it, based on the Geras HaKedus Simachov, that the mere capacity, ability for us to be atheists is based on what he says, because the Eberster, who has Enle Ilavisibe, created a yesh that can choose to ignore and not feel that it has a source. And based on that, learned how to transform atheism into a force for positive. So it's very creative, very original. There are points in here that it could be argued about, whether it fully explains and did the Altarab actually mean atheism, kfira, or all just meant the yesh bifineatzmei. But regardless, it's definitely a contribution to the dialogue on this topic, and I commend you for that. And finally, essay number three is The Struggle is Real, Using Siddhas to Reframe Challenges. Hannah Colin, age 28, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Director of Special Projects, Obavich House at Penn. And this essay. This essay is about challenging life events are commonplace in the human experience talking about challenges in life. And this essay outlines the steps involved in reframing perspectives during difficult circumstances through the application of Hasidic concepts. These ideas aim to remedy this dilemma through their utilization as positive thinking, which when applied during periods of struggle can result in patterns of positive thinking and higher psychological resilience for subsequent challenging life events. Three key points she makes is choosing happiness, revealing godliness, revealing godliness and trusting in God. And a, uh, a very good contribution to, I would say, the, 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 the school of thought of psychology, especially through the eyes of Chassidus. Well, well done. And um, with well annotated. So thank you for that as well. So with that, my friends, let us conclude this episode of My Life Chassidus Applied as we count down the days to the Rishchidosh of Menachem of Menachem, we console of of, it says in Shalaz Rosh Tevis, Edem Bovel. Edem is the Romans that destroyed the second temple, and B, Beis is Bovel, the Babylonians, the first. So Menachem of, we transform it, we console and transform it, as we discussed earlier. Maybe Yehovchiyom Mil, the Sosno, Simchol, Amaydim, Tevim, the Gula, Amitis, Vashlema. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., as we will be here at Mitzvah Shem next week. And I hope to see you then. And please share your questions, your comments and also your generous support. Thank you very much. Be well.